0: listening to the addiction files where we discuss evidence-based treatment clinical pearls and resources while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives we are the addiction doctors dr darlene peterson and paula cook Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. This is Paula and I today, and we are going to talk about fentanyl and its derivatives. This is going to be a great discussion, right, Paula? Oh, yeah. We are going to talk about first the history of fentanyl. We'll go into some of the statistics, the pharmacology, and some of the just a little bit of the unique properties of fentanyl treatment and things to kind of watch out for. Fentanyl was first developed back in 1959, and this was from Janssen Pharmaceuticals. It, it really was primarily just used as an anesthetic and pain reliever, and then it really became more common in the 1960s as an intravenous anesthetic. And this was because of you didn't get as much hemodynamic and instability. That was where it became a little more popular, but it really wasn't Something is commonplace until the mid-1990s when you came out, when the fentanyl patch came out. And that's where it was used for the treatment of chronic pain. And then there, a couple of other delivery mechanisms came around. And there were things like, Paula, do you remember the Actique lollipop? And Oh, I do. This was, I think, as a medical student, that was the first time I think I was really... Introduced to addiction of fentanyl was a patient who overdosed on, I don't remember, it was something like, they were sticking, I think, like 12 actiques and sucking on those Mm. and had an unintentional overdose. They amazingly survived. I don't know how, but then, yeah, I saw them on inpatient for that. So yeah. Interesting. interesting. I I think
1: my first exposure to a patient who was addicted to fentanyl, they were chewing fentanyl patches and they weren't their own patches. They were their mothers. So when their mom would discard their fentanyl patch, their pain patch, and just put it in the, in the rubbish bin, they would take the patch and chew on it and suck on it. And it was really interesting because when mom then like, he was terrified that she was going to stop you know, having access to those patches because he had a significant physical dependence and uh, mental dependence on those.
0: Yes, that is that is fairly common. I think we see that quite a bit as family members. And I have treated multiple patients that have come in that have kind of used they've been sucking out the leftovers of family members patches, using them orally or injecting really common, huh? So some of the statistics associated with fentanyl, This has been really far as when we really saw a jump as far as illicit use and overdose deaths. Starting kind of 2016, Paula, is where we saw a nearly just 50% increase in overdose deaths. This is from NIDA. So it says in 2016, synthetic opiates were involved in nearly 50%. So that's like 19,000 of opiate-related deaths. And that was up from 14% in 2010. That's a huge jump. So that's huge. Yeah, wow. Just a couple of years, fast forward a couple of years, 2018, fentanyl was the most commonly listed opiate in overdose drug deaths. So this is all from NIDA. Surpassing heroin from 2013 to 2016, overdose deaths involving fentanyl increased 113% per year. There is one thing that you need to keep in mind though. It says note that from those more that mortality data this we are probably still underrepresented the amount that fentanyl has affected cuz 15 to 25% of death certificates analyzed did not indicate the type of drug involved in the overdose because that's either because the drug test was not conducted or there was failure to record the test results on the death certificate. Those numbers, even as high as they are, were still maybe underreported. So just kind of keep 2019, there was more than 36,000 deaths involving synthetic opiates other than methadone. So that occurred in the United States, which is more deaths than from any other type of opiate. And I think think. it's
1: interesting or important to point out that you know, we just talked about the history of fentanyl and fentanyl emerged as a useful drug, right? It was a controlled substance category two; It had a medical use and it still does, was used as an anesthetic and an analgesic. But the kind of fentanyl we talk about, and even you and I, when we were early in our careers, we really saw mostly abuse of prescription Fentanyl, so actique lollipops and fentanyl patches. And I think that still happens, but far more commonly now is the abuse and the unintentional exposure of illicit fentanyl that is made in clandestine labs around the world that is then sent to either be mixed with heroin or other drugs or pressed into pills that then um, are sold as oxycodone or hydrocodone or fentanyl pills as well. And so it's a whole nother game. I think fentanyl now is not really the kind of fentanyl you and I used to talk about at the late in the late 1990s and the early 2000s uh, and I think it's important to understand that when we're seeing these drastic increases in overdose deaths relating to fentanyl and its analogs it's most likely coming from all this illicit, I mean, illicit non-prescribed fentanyl.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and these patients that are overdosing don't even know that they're getting fentanyl half the time. Exactly. And this is, yeah, and this is directly from the CDC website. It says previous reports have indicated that an increase in synthetic opiate involved deaths have a, have been associated with the number of drug submissions obtained by law enforcement that tests positive for fentanyl, but not with fentanyl prescribing rates. So that's exactly what you just said, Paula. These reports indicate that an increase in synthetic opiate involved deaths are being driven by an increase in fentanyl involved overdose deaths. And the source of the fentanyl is more likely to be illicitly manufactured than pharmaceutical. So it's not diverted medicine. This is all, and we'll come, we'll go into that more. Where, where is this all coming from? Because I'm talking massive amounts. There is massive amounts of these illicitly manufactured fentanyl. And what are, what are we talking about when we're talking about some of these analogs? I'm just going to briefly touch on that, and then Paula's going to go into some of the pharmacology. There are multiple fentanyl analogs, such as acetofentanyl, furanil fentanyl, carfentanyl, which are all similar in chemical structure to fentanyl, but they're not routinely detected because of speci- you require specialized toxicology. And then a recent surveillance has also identified other emerging synthetic opiates. And so these just have chemical names, U47700, also known as PINK, and we'll go into that. Estimates of the potency of fentanyl analogs vary from less potent to far more potent than fentanyl. And, but there's a lot of uncertainty because the potency of illicitly manufactured fentanyl analogs has it's not been really evaluated in humans. Like, how are we gonna study that, you know? Carfentanil, yeah. the most potent fentanyl fentanyl analog, for instance, is estimated to be ten thousand times more potent than morphine. Just to give you, we have fentanyl, which is a hundred times more potent, right? And then we have carfentanil, which is ten thousand times more potent than morphine. So, I mean, this this is why we're seeing this massive like increase in overdose and overdose deaths.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, fentanyl and and the analogs are they vary in potency, but we generally know that they're extremely potent. And there's you know, variable exposure to to these products. Either intentional, so people are buying fentanyl pressed pills or accessing fentanyl powder, which I've actually seen more commonly in the last couple of months for some reason. I've had several patients admit to my program who have just been smoking fentanyl or injecting fentanyl, very many of them injecting. I think it's far too potent for injection use, but um, most of the time they're getting exposed to fentanyl incidentally in their heroin supply or in their pressed or through pills that they're buying from dealers that they think are oxycodone or hydrocodone but they're pressed pills and they contain fentanyl but the interesting thing about the pressed pill market for those of you who are unfamiliar is a pressed pills you know the pressed pill scene is a very interesting kind of process where people who are in that business, which often it can be run out of hotel rooms or houses. I know here in Utah, there was huge, two huge busts, one in a very nice neighborhood a few years ago, and then one in a motel room right down by the Real Salt Lake um, Stadium, but they gather the ingredients basically to bag and distribute powdered heroin or powdered oxycodone, etc. And they add in however many grains or milligrams of fentanyl that they want because of its potency. It's very, very dilute. But then when you go to press the pills, if you only have one grain or one milligram of fentanyl for every, you know, 100 or two or 300 milligrams of your other opioid, it's very variable as to how many milligrams actually end up in the, in the uh, pressed pill itself, right? You could get none, or you could get a whole bunch of milligrams in one pill. And I think that's what's so dangerous is that uh, folks have no idea what they're actually going to get. And if you're dealing with something like carfentanil or some of these other even more potent analogs i mean they're so potent that it only takes one like grain of salt size exposure for people to have especially people who are not tolerant to have an overdose event and unfortunately there have been episodes and out and clusters of overdose deaths around the country where folks have bought drugs that they thought were benzodiazepines, so alprazolam most commonly. There's this. This happened in San Francisco a few years ago. There were several people who died of an overdose with fentanyl in their system when they thought they were buying alprazolam bars. And the alprazolam bars were actually counterfeit pressed pills that may or may not have had alprazolam in them, but they also had fentanyl in them. And we're seeing that more and more. We're seeing other substances be contaminated with fentanyl, not only opioids, including methamphetamine and even cannabis, which is kind of strange. But we've had some reports that people are testing their cannabis supply and have found some overlap with fentanyl contamination, and it could just be contamination from shared distribution. Sites.
0: This is isn't this so disturbing though? We just got an alert today, I think about a couple of hours ago, that they just put out from the DEA a public safety warning about these pressed pills, right, Paula? With fake pills containing fentanyl and methamphetamine. This is going out to the public trying to raise awareness. Just because if you have you have patients that again, yeah, they think that they're buying they're buying meth or they're buying just Percocet or Lortab, and they're getting fentanyl laced pills. Yeah, that's what we're seeing is these lethal overdoses.
1: Yeah, it's terrible. Okay,
0: so let's go into the pharmacology, if you want to go into that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So we've kind of talked about it a little bit already. So fentanyl and and the analogs, they're synthetic opioids, which means they're not derived directly from the poppy plant. They're made in a lab. They're very powerful. They're similar to morphine in terms of their action. I mean, they're full opioid agonists. They range in potency like we've just been discussing. They have very short half-life. So this is why they're effective for anesthetic use, right? You don't want to be giving someone a drug for an anesthetic that lasts, you know, 37 hours or something like buprenorphine or methadone. So short, short half-life of 3.7 hours. And this is important when you are working in a hospital setting or a detox setting when you have someone who comes in and withdraw from fentanyl, recognizing that they're going to be in withdrawal really early and really severely, and you need to treat their withdrawal aggressively. Also recognizing that because fentanyl is so potent, they're going to have very high tolerance to opioids and they're going to need pretty aggressive opioid replacement uh, equivalents. So we try not to give a replacement, you know, milligram by milligram guide for buprenorphine to other opioids. But I would imagine, and I've seen that when we have fentanyl-dependent folks, we typically have to dose them the upper end of, of the range for buprenorphine to help them feel more comfortable. I um, Just to highlight this, and this is not to shame anybody, but I saw I had a patient who was admitted to a local hospital. The report was that they were using fentanyl, And the consult service recommended that they wait 48 to 72 hours before they initiate buprenorphine because they were using fentanyl. And I think the mistake there was that they were thinking of a fentanyl patch or something like that, not powdered fentanyl or, you know, fentanyl that's very, very short acting. So you can start buprenorphine, start treatment very quickly because of its short half-life.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Yeah, yeah, because I think that's a common misperception. Because I think we so many yeah, providers so, are used to the prescribed and not this illicit fentanyl, mm-hmm. which the majority of your patients are going to be using. So that's a really good point.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, we don't really know. I mean, these are these are designer drugs, basically at this point. So we can think that what they're taking is fentanyl. Most point of care tests, and we'll talk about this in a minute, are not even checking for fentanyl. So a lot of times we're relying on patient or we're sending urine out to the lab and it's coming back from a gas chromatography or a mass spec saying that it's fentanyl or an analog. But like other designer drugs, it's a continuously changing market where labs are going to change this oxygen and this hydroxyl group, etc. to modify the substance. So who knows what the half-life is? Who knows what the pharmacology is? But I would get a history from the patient and ask them, how long does it take you to go into withdrawal? How often are you redosing? And that will help you. When prescribed by a by a provider. Prescription fentanyl is still either used IV in the hospital setting by anesthesiologists, pain doctors, or fentanyl patches are still available. And I think lozenges might be still available. I'm not sure. But right now, the fentanyl that we're discussing is is typically a powder, white powder. And uh, before we started recording, we were talking about some of the names that it goes by. And Darlene, you were saying that it's very commonly known as China white. And there's a reason for that. But it's very, it's easy to, to come by just as a white powder and um, easily absorbed because it is very lipophilic. So it pa- crosses the blood-brain barrier very easily.
0: Other things about fentanyl, really just one of the reasons why this is so common in overdoses is there's a syndrome, Common, the medical term for it is fentanyl induced respiratory muscle rigidity syndrome or like commonly called wooden chest syndrome. And this is a really, it's kind of a, it's a very scary, but a, a kind of an interesting phenomenon. The, the theories behind it is you're, you know, what Paula just said, it's extremely lipophilic molecules. What fentanyl is extremely lipophilic. So it readily crosses the blood brain barrier. And in addition to that, because it gets that high levels in the CNS, these findings say say that maybe that's why you get this skeletal muscle rigidity. And then there's also something that they think you get this release of noradrenaline, which activates alpha adrenergic receptors and also some possible activation of cholinergic receptors. So in effect, you get this very, like when you have IV use, because we see this clinically, even when fentanyl is being used by anesthesia in the hospital. And you see this, but unfortunately, on the street, when you have heroin-laced fentanyl, very, very common. And this is why you we have these reports of patients that just immediately kind of go into, you, they'll report even like seizure, like activity, and then just immediate respiratory kind of arrest, but very difficult field resuscitation. That's what's very challenging because they do not... They're very difficult with bag valve mask ventilation because you have this rigid chest and you're not able to resuscitate them. The physical findings with what you see with wooden chest syndrome are typically episodic kind of what they say breath holding spells, very tense abdominal muscles, firmly locked jaw, stiff extremities. Hypoxia and hypertension are also common during those episodes. There are not really any other very like consistent patterns of vital sign changes that are reported. There was, you know, in this paper, and sorry, I should cite them. There's a really good paper on this from, this is Torvali and Janowski called "Noradrenergic Mechanisms and Fentanyl-Mediated Rapid Death explain failure of naloxone and opiate crisis and this is from the Journal of pharmacology and experimental therapeutics what they found is that when you're seeing patients that overdose that they can, this is very challenging obviously for any lay responders but even when you have filled responders to try to to try to do supportive care our treatment obviously is naloxone they need high dose naloxone, and it's often needs to be repeated, right, Paula? Yep, exactly. Anything else about that? Anything else I missed?
1: No, I mean, I think just saying that it, it is an opioid. So if you in intoxication, it causes euphoria and a little bit of amnesia and and more intoxication, you get the full effect like you would any other opioid where you get blue lip decreased respirations, bradycardia, and somnolence leading to coma.
0: Carfentanil, basically one of the fentanyl derivatives, it's a synthetic opiate. It does have, you know, was typically used as a tranquilizer agent for elephants and other large mammals. But when administered to humans, we talked about this before, it's 10,000 times more potent than morphine and 100 times more potent than fentanyl. And just think about this in relation that two milligrams, a fentanyl is enough to be a lethal dose to a human. And and so we've had, remember, was this like two or three summers ago, there were some alerts that there were some deaths that there were some fentanyl showing up. And I mean, it pops up every now and then, but there'll be every now and then you'll have a little bit of a surge that there'll be be some contamination. And then Paula, if you want to do pink.
1: Yeah. So pink Is the nickname for a drug that was classified as U47700? And it's another synthetic opioid that's very dangerous. It's been linked to multiple confirmed deaths all across the country and has a very high potential for abuse and overdose. It is typically made into counterfeit pills that can almost look exactly like what the dealer's trying to pass them off as so they might say that it's an oxycodone thirty milligram tablet but instead it contains U four seven seven zero zero just like they do for fentanyl. Or people could sell pink just as pink if and people are seeking it out. It's much more potent than morphine. It typically comes from illicit labs in China, like like a lot of the fentanyl that we have in this country and the synthetic, uh, excuse me, and the analogs of fentanyl. So it's it's very dangerous. It's something that has brought a lot of emotion to Utah, our home state, because there was an episode, really devastating, unfortunate overdose of two junior high students in Park City, Utah, a couple of years ago who overdosed and died, and they found this pink product in their system. The devastating for the community kind of brought this particular substance into light.
0: We we kind of touched on this before, but fentanyl is can be difficult. It's not because it is a synthetic. It doesn't typically show up in our normal 10 and 12 panel point of care urine drug screens. And so you typically have to send it out. There are specifically fentanyl test strips which that's part of our harm reduction is encouraging patients to test sample, you know, test samples. But the detection windows in urine is typically going to be only one to three days. So even if you don't, if you only have possibly episodic use, it's gonna be sometimes even more difficult to detect. Blood is only up to 48 hours. Hair follicle can be up to three months. So that's our, that's our typical detection times, especially fentanyl and its analogs. To detect those, that's usually where we are sending those out. And then treatment of intoxication syndromes, withdrawal, and management. This is, again, just very similar to how we treat any opiates. Intoxication syndromes looks very similar, although you have to watch for what we just talked about, wooden chest syndrome. So you have to have sometimes very expert when you're dealing with airway management, when you have a, when you have an overdose situation and think about, you have to do higher doses of naloxone and you may, and or repeating your dose of naloxone withdrawal management. Paula went over that. Do, do not need to wait. I think that's the key. You do not need to wait to start medication for treatment. And we treat, we just treat as we do any other opiate use disorder. And then harm reduction, absolutely educate your patients. And and really stress this, I just had this discussion today with one of my patients with who came in for stimulant use disorder, give them naloxone overdose kits. He at first just thought it was weird that I was giving him a naloxone overdose kit, but I had to have that discussion that even even stimulants are being laced with fentanyl. So please make sure that we are educating our patients. And P- Paula's Clinic offers, you know, the fentanyl test strips and look into what sites they can get. You know, there are places often through your local health department where patients can get these for free, but talk to them about fentanyl test strips as a harm reduction strategy. And naloxone, what? don't know what more we can say about that yeah
1: no i think that's exactly it i mean i would say education is such a such a big key so talking to your patients about testing for fentanyl so the test uh, fentanyl test strips can identify fentanyl and they can be used to test injectable drugs powders pills and they're pretty accessible through harm reduction programs so syringe exchange programs has access to these strips for free they can give you and the health department has fentanyl test strips. You can actually also buy them on Amazon. And then of course, along with letting your patients know how to use and read the fentanyl test strips, because they, the ones that we have anyway, they're counterintuitive. One line is positive and two lines is negative. So I always think like a pregnancy test, two lines is positive. So you want to be sure that people understand what is a positive test. You want to discuss what someone would be willing to do if they do identify fentanyl in their drugs and, you know, see, well, what what are you willing to do? Are you willing to not use your supply if it's testing positive for fentanyl? Are you willing to use a test dose? Are you willing to try a snorted or smoked dose instead of an injected dose? Are you willing to use with other people so that if you do have an overdose, they can reverse it with naloxone, et cetera? I mean, those are all basic harm reduction strategies to to reduce Any opioid overdose, but when you're dealing with fentanyl, you know, you might not, people might not be around to help each other reverse an overdose if the whole supply is contaminated. We just had a call, phone call to our clinic a few weeks ago, about a week ago, actually. We give fentanyl test strips and education and naloxone kits out really aggressively in our clinic and in our group medical visits, and we had a couple call in and say, thank you so much for giving us fentanyl test strips. We had a positive uh, batch of heroin for fentanyl the other day, and someone in our group decided to still use it, and they overdosed immediately, and we were able to reverse them with naloxone. And so we, we were just like, well, that's, well, first of all, that's really unfortunate that fentanyl's out there contaminating the heroin supply. Um, obviously, it's unfortunate that people are using heroin too because it's such a risky, kind of risky business. But it, it was helpful that they were able to identify it and then be prepared in some re- reason, in some way as well. So I would definitely look into having fentanyl test strips available and also having naloxone available and also having that education piece and that harm reduction mindset of what do we need to do to keep people safe? And then also keep your ear to the ground in your community about what's happening um, in the local drug scene regarding fentanyl. I mean, f- like Darlene said, for the, for the DEA to make a you know, a, an emergency announcement, That is, that's something, right? And earlier this year, we had, uh, on April 7th, the CDC and SAMHSA announced that federal funding can be used to purchase fentanyl test strips. So that's really a big deal because federal funding was not, um, had been, Banned previously, to buy certain harm reduction supplies. So, because of this particular overdose outbreak due to fentanyl and other novel um, analogs, they've begun to reverse some of this federal funding legislation. So, harm reduction programs in your area should be able to get fentanyl test strips for you, as well as um, copious access to naloxone.
0: Thank you, Paula. That is such an excellent point. I think education is just the key in getting the word out there, and I think that is so important. Is It is, it's just talking with our patients. So we get, we just have that two way communication. And then it's like you said, just getting that awareness. And sometimes, exactly like you said, just keeping your ear to the ground because if you can tell your patients that, hey, I'm hearing that this is out there, I just want you to be safe, then we, you might be able to just stop someone from overdosing because it, it, if we can just have them just kind of stop and think and maybe maybe they maybe they won't use, you know, or maybe they will use some of these tools and things that are available. You just got to keep that conversation going.
1: Exactly, and look to, if you're involved in lobbying, um, look and see what needs to move forward in your state in terms of access to harm reduction measures in your state. And you know, there's efforts by the FDA to approve and have higher dose naloxone accessible for our folks too, because like we discussed, fentanyl being so potent, the typical dose of, ven- of naloxone that we give right now, which is two and two uh, or four milligram naloxone own kits are not it's just not enough so, to overcome. Right. So we're looking for approval and uh, for cheap alternative eight milligram doses of naloxone. And, and that was something that moved forward um, again earlier in the year. FDA approved that dose. So it's just a matter of making it affordable, making sure that our patients have access to this high dose naloxone and other supplies. And then, of course, you know, treating an opioid use disorder so that people can get away from the risk altogether. And you would treat a fentanyl use problem just like we treat other opioid use problems by using psychosocial interventions, using medications for opioid use disorder, and giving them an informed consent decision of what would be best for them out of methadone, buprenorphine or naltrexone and um, providing them access to those things, uh, referring them to an OTP where they can get methadone treatment or providing buprenorphine, naloxone yourself or referring them out if you don't have the capacity to do that or making sure that they have access to naltrexone. That being said, they have to have, you know, I would say five days off of fentanyl before they can start naltrexone. Um, And if they're using other opioids with fentanyl, probably longer than that. So treatment as usual for fentanyl people, and the key is to keep people alive while they're still using. So education, naloxone, and fentanyl test strips, and then just being aware of what's going on in our community. And uh, there's some interesting things online if you're interested in this topic. There's some really interesting reports and briefs about what's kind of going on with fentanyl in terms of the DEA and intelligence, um, in terms of trying to control counterfeit fentanyl pills and the influx of fentanyl coming from out of the country across the border, um, which historically has come from China by way of Mexico. Although now, you know, who knows? I mean, labs are popping up everywhere and yes. we, there's likely labs ev- all over the, our country and Canada, Mexico itself. So, um, you know, it's very, very, very profitable. In fact, we were just looking at this before we started podcasting. According to a DEA brief, which was released in in July of 2016 called counterfeit prescription pills containing fentanyl a global threat. They have this fascinating table showing the profitability of fentanyl. So fentanyl is so potent, you need a tiny amount per pill, per counterfeit pill. So if you have one kilogram of fentanyl and you put one milligram of fentanyl in each pill, and you price each pill at $20 a pill, well, you have $20 million from one milligram of fentanyl. And what was it? We were just saying that they seized something like 46 kilograms. 46
0: kilograms, yes. of fentanyl, just barely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that's amazing. And there's also a very good article that was just aired on NPR on September 27th of of 2021, and um, just saying that the DEA has released this public safety alert because they're seizing more and more um, counterfeit pills. And they said they've seized, the DEA has seized more than nine and a half million fake pills so far in 2021, which is more than the last two years combined. And it said that its lab has found that two out of every five pressed pills with fentanyl contain a lethal dose of fentanyl. I mean, that that is really scary. Is. So that's a very interesting article, you might want to look that up, you can listen to the whole piece on NPR, or you can read the, the scripted version. But obviously, the DEA is worried about this. And, and it's time to go into kind of public safety alert.
0: So there you go. Thank you, Paula. That is fantastic. So that is our episode on fentanyl. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique or advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having, opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.